All right, folks, so I see that people are joining us in the attendees section, which is super cool. Um, it's for anyone who hasn't seen us making the podcast live, you get to see a bit of the sausage getting made with us just chit-chatting beforehand. Um, so uh, I'll do my usual intro, which is uh, thank you very much for joining us. My name is Palm Beer, if you haven't seen my face before. And on the decks behind the scenes is David Basanta, who doesn't like to be on camera or on the microphone. Um, he, he does exist. I've seen him. He and does exist. Him. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, looking at most of the people attending, they know him. So <laughs> that's all good. Um, but yes, we'd like to welcome everybody into our foray into going digital. And hopefully everyone's enjoying their Friday evening appropriately. I have my... Um, Sweet baby Java over here. I'm reliably informed our guest, James here, has a, a margarita tucked away, as right. well as a cup of tea. Um, mm. But yes, yeah, speaking of which, our guest today is Dr. James Gurney, who studies uh, pathogens and disease at Georgia Tech. How are you doing, James? I'm very well, um, thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I've listened to the show on and off for quite a while now. So David visited us in Montpellier, I want to say four years ago now, and so talk to me a little about podcasts then, listen to it then, at, on and off since then, really. Oh, it's very kind. Oh, I'm yeah. glad people actually Gotta... do listen to us somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's, it's weird times. It's, have, have you felt strange about the fact that you seem to be looking into people's homes? Like you, you see their dogs, their cats, their kids, all sorts of things that in your professional life you wouldn't ordinarily see. You would never, yeah, you'd never know that they're there. Um, it's odd, isn't it? I suppose we're, yeah, we're, we're all having to adjust to this new lifestyle that, you know, hopefully won't last more than a couple of months, but I guess we'll see, right? Um, right. <laughs> It's, uh, I've, I, again, so I, I've, I, you know, I've, I've done podcasting for quite a while. I've done sort of video chatting a lot, uh, over the last five, 10 years. So I've, I've got used to talking to people this, in this sort of manner. Um, and I think it's a great way to, to actually do outreach and to do, do podcasts and stuff. Um, having, yeah. having video chats and stuff like this is great. Um, so I used to do a podcast called the league of nerds, which was, Probably the worst name we could have chosen <laughs> on reflection. Uh, the, all the other names we thought were cool had, had already been taken, and sort of, so we, we decided to go for something, something we, we, we assumed would be okay. Um, so, yeah, yeah, well, so, I'm glad that we, we're having our cherry taken by an expert podcaster himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, despite living in Atlanta, obviously you do not have a Georgia twang. No. So tell us uh, a little bit about your, your background, what you trained in, where you trained, and how you sure. ended up in the US. Sure. So uh, regular listeners to your podcast might have heard uh, my, my friend Sophie Darch talked to you not so long ago. I think she was the first episode of the season. Exactly, yeah. Uh, Sophie and I did our PhDs together. Uh, I was a year and a half behind her academically, I think, or two years maybe. Uh, in both in Steve Diggle's lab. So Steve Diggle, uh, for people who don't know him, I'm gonna, I'm gonna embarrass him and say Fleming Prize winner Steve Diggle mm -hmm. uh, helped, helped revolutionize the idea of social microbiology in mainly in Pseudomonas originosa, talking about quorum sensing and how that relates to social evolution theory uh, with lots of other people. Of course, people like Stu West and uh, my current boss, Sam Brown. Lots of great work on this field. Um, 
So I did my PhD under him on bacterial quorum sensing and kin discrimination, which is a fancy way of saying, do, bac do bacteria know about each other? Do they know who's related and who isn't related? Uh, we never really got a good answer on that. Like, I assume like most thesis, we sort of like, <laughs> we did other stuff and uh, had to write that title down somewhere in the, in the abstract. Uh, that was, so that was all in Sumimos Originosa. So a background in quorum sensing and microbiology. I did an undergraduate in molecular biology as well, uh, back at still in the UK. And I, I was finishing up my PhD. Um, and I'd always, always wanted to work with phage and never really had a professional opportunity to do it. And I happened to come across a Twitter post by my previous boss, Mike Hochberg, basically advertising a job for a postdoc. I was like, oh, I know that name. <laughs> that, that's a, he's, a, he's a cool person to work with. So I dropped him an email and applied for the job and you know, had the interview and all this other stuff. And then he emailed me back to offer it and was like, that's great. Yeah, oh, of course I'll take it. And then I had to look up where exactly is Mont Montpellier? Mont is it Montpellier? <laughs> where, where is this? Turns out I was moving to the south of France. Um, don't, Which does not sound terrible, frankly. Well, if you speak French, it's probably a little easier. <laughs> <laughs> I, I basically knew four words of French. I knew hello, yes, no, and thank you. Um, which was not ideal. <laughs> so I got, I got off the plane and sort of waved down a taxi and sort of my broken French was like, do you speak English? Which I'd learned on the plane. And expecting the answer to be, yes, of course, monsieur. Like, what can I do? How can I help? Where'd you like to go? The, the blunt answer was no. <laughs> I was like, oh, crap. I'm in a foreign country with no money, don't know what I'm doing. And cool. All right. Um, so I just pointed at, on a map where I needed to go. And luckily I got taken to my, my Airbnb and uh, my, my hostess also, she also didn't speak any English. It was a, an interesting couple of weeks there. Um, so with Mike, I, I studied bacteriophage uh, with the idea of doing bacteriophage therapy. That's sort of what all my phage work has been leading up to. And I use, I still do use evolutionary ideas about um, network theory and different types of co-evolutionary dynamics to understand how we might improve phage therapy. Because unlike most treatments, if you give a phage, it doesn't stay static. It will co-evolve with the pathogen in the host. So we have to understand how the treatment will change in response to the, the pathogen changing. Okay. So let's take a little step back. I think sure. one of our former guests has talked about what a phage is, but can you explain yes. what it is? Sure. So it's a virus of bacteria. Um, it's the simplest way to say it. So like all other life, there are viruses that infect bacteria and they, they, there's several different ranges you know, of DNA, RNA phages, all sorts of things, but they are exclusively the viruses of bacteria. They don't typically infect mammals. It's been some work to suggest they can change stuff, but it's uh, pretty niche. <laughs> uh, they, the thing I'm also interested in is that they typically have a, a way of attaching to the, the bacterial host. So they bind via some sort of receptor on the bacterial surface. And understanding how those surface factors change is what drives a lot of my research as well. Okay. Um, I, think I, can go, I can go another layer up or below for exp <laughs> explanation there, I think. Whichever you like. So I was actually going to ask you about your current research that you're doing at Georgia Tech. 
So Georgia Tech, my research is, falls under the, uh, this idea that I have developed called phage steering. And I haven't, I didn't, I didn't think of this de novo or, you know, didn't, didn't come up independently. Other people have been working on very similar ideas and I've just sort of trying to market it a bit better, I guess. <laughs> I think of it. So this goes back to the receptor idea. If you have a, uh, a virus or bacteria and it, and it has some mechanism it needs to attach to that bacteria, the bacteria is under selection to change that receptor, otherwise it dies. We found phages that bind to clinically important receptors, so um, virulence factors, things that make us sick, the bacteria produces you know, toxins or enzymes or um, things your immune system recognizes, and other structures like antibiotic resistance mechanisms, so efflux pumps, so the way the bacteria pumps out antibiotics, we found phage that attaches to those receptors. So we can put the bacteria into a sort of catch-22 situation. Either you evolve resistance to the phage and you potentially make yourself more susceptible to the antibiotic, or you maintain your resistance to the antibiotic and be sensitive to the phage. So we're pushing those systems and trying to, trying to figure out where exactly they'll break down, because they will break down eventually. The, the, the bacteria of the phage will evolve around our, our nice little box that we put around the system. So we want to know where and how we can use those ideas to effectively treat patients. Okay. Um, so I probably should have said at the beginning that we have a Q&A box. And okay. given that we have this kind of uh, novel way of speaking to people these days, feel free to ask questions at any point in the conversation. Um, so can you tell us uh, the kind of techniques that you use on a daily basis? Because mm. I think a lot of us talk a lot about the, the kind of um, the theoretical side of our research. Yeah. But it's possibly hard for people to imagine what that looks like in a lab or in mm -hmm. a group or. So the, yeah, the clinical use of, that's not the clinical there, but the practical use of phage is kind of stuck in the past. I've, I've, I've railed against a lot of the techniques we use in the field because they're, they're, they're built for ideal circumstances. There are, there are things like, for example, cross-streak assays where we, we plate out bacteria, we, we take a loop of bacteria, put it across a plate, we take a loop of the phage, we put it on a, a diagonal cross. Mm -hmm. And we say, okay, if they, if they haven't grown that cross-section, that means the bacteria is resistant to the phage. It's like, great, works fantastic when you use laboratory phage, laboratory bacteria that we know work together. If you have any sort of change in co-evolution factors or anything changes, you may as well just throw that assay away. And I've been, I've been trying to develop qPCR methods to test these ideas and sort of, you know, look in more detail. The, 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 the core is this, of course, is everything you've ever thought of about phage, if you're in the lab, probably someone in the 1940s has already done it. Some, some early pioneer was like, okay, these are, because this is how we started learning about molecular biology, we used phage. Mm -hmm. I think it's been about three or four Nobel Prizes won based on simple phage biology. And we use them because they were you know, the simplest blocks to move stuff around to understand how enzymes break things down, how selection works in some cases. I think it was Delbrook won his Nobel Prize for that. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to, there's a, a very famous professor in the area called uh, Bruce Levin, who works down the road from us in, at Emory. And there's <laughs> something unique about speaking to someone who was sort of, you know, I'm not going to say he was on the ground level because he was maybe two or three years old when that happened. But, you know, he was... He was an early pioneer and still is, still is very good at his job and you know, has a, uh, still can think very sharply about stuff and 
it's an absolute riot to to speak to. But he'll pull out his like his uh, PhD thesis from whenever it was fifties or the sixties, you know, flip through some pages and show you something that's like, oh, cool, like oh, you you've, you did that, yeah, you did that before before even my parents were born. You were thinking about this. That's <laughs> that's a great thing to know about. Um, but so there's this dichotomy of being stuck in that not not using the most up-to-date molecular skills to do stuff but people are i don't want to disparage anyone who's doing there are great people doing it um in case anyone's watching they're like oh i do this i do this really cool face like i'm sure that there are lots of people doing it it's just a lot of the current methodology is still quite dated um yeah which is nice because again it takes you back to that sort of you know classic microbiologist you know flames and, and loop pipetting style um which I think, I don't know if it's becoming a lost art. I definitely, I've noticed that, <laughs> maybe I should say this about Georgia Tech, but I've noticed that the, the, the undergrad's ability to do sort of classic microbiology techniques isn't taught as well as it used to be, maybe. I, that's maybe my, my limited sampling of, of different classes. Yeah, I mean, not that I want to sound like an old fogey, but mm -hmm. you, know, you do quite often find yourself around students saying, yes, I had to make this by scratch. No, we didn't have, you know, this, plug and play amplifier you know you had yeah. to look at this stuff um mm -hmm. actually one of the funny things that i've seen surrounding the the, the test for covid for example is yeah. the fact that we are rapidly running out of our reagents and nobody knows how to make them anymore yes. so um <laughs> I, yeah. I still do rna extraction with phenylchloroform that's that's, hard that's how i was taught and it's <laughs> But I, I, I don't think the FDA will let us use that. I haven't, I haven't checked up on the regulation for that, but I assume, I assume that's the reason we aren't just doing, you know, I, I've got... I would assume so. Yeah, they, they seem to have very select um, kits and reagents yeah. that you can use from very select vendors. Yeah. Which, again, which makes sense. Yes, because yeah. it helps things to be reproducible and, mm -hmm. you know, they have a certain level of quality control, etc. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one of the things I was thinking about with bacterial work is then how do you translate those things back to what happens in a human mm -hmm. because i mean much like we do stuff in a, a dish um yeah yeah how do you how do you figure out what that's actually going to do in a person i mean so that's i guess the million dollar question right what we want to know what's happening inside patients and i've, I've been very lucky in some of my collaborators um up in yale who are you know light, light years ahead of what i've done uh, I should give them all the credit. They've done some very amazing work. Was Professor Paul Turner and his um, research scientist Ben Chan have really driven a lot of excellent clinical work for bacteriophage. So they've, they've been very generous and uh, allowed us to use samples from patients who have had phage. So they, they've given, let's say, 10 or so patients with uh, cystic fibrosis, the, the genetic disease of the lungs where mucus builds up and you get a bacterial chronic bacterial infections throughout your life they've been treating some of those dire patients with bacteriophage so we 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 have these two sets of like the very sort of rudimentary in vitro stuff and then the real world case where we've done everything and you've seen it work and now we're in that position of like okay connect the dots and find out what what was the reason it worked in this patient but not this patient what are these tests are we thinking what is the rationale behind this person having a, uh, improving their lung function while this person didn't can we replicate that in in the uh, in, in the lab and on that topic i, I had a, an absolutely not to devalue with the word but an absolute mind-blowing occasion happened to me at the last conference i was at so i was at the cystic fibrosis conference uh in tennessee nashville and 
I was presenting a poster of my sort of my my in in vitro lab work on phage dynamics as based on uh, based on patient samples, and I was fortunate enough to have someone come up to my poster and say, "Oh yeah, this this rings a bell. This is uh, this this phage sounds." I think I had it in my lung, and I was like, I, <laughs> "You're one of the patients who had this phage." Oh and wow! Like, they, so so, so um, she she had the d done by Ben and people and Paul up in the L on, F on FDA approved compassionate release studies. And she was at the conference of talking to people. I was like, this, you know, all this work is based on what we found from your lung, really. This is all, you know, this is all co-evolution stuff based on what we thought was happening, like the time wires, the phage, the bacteria. This is all based on trying to re to capture how we were able to be so effective with your lungs. And it just, it just, it changed how I view the work we're doing. I mean, I obviously, I always knew there were patients at the end of the day who, who, who need this therapy or, or would really benefit from this therapy, I should say. But to meet someone face to face who is there solely because Ben and Paul had had the sure, let's say the guts to to actually go through with this was just astonishing. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And the odds of that happening must have been so very slim. <laughs> All right. So bizarre. Um, so we have a question from Eric, uh, who is part of our Taste of Science Indie team. Hey, Eric. Um, and he asks, well, he says. We've already established a symbiotic relationship with bacteria, for example, the gut microbiome. And we use this approach to deal with dangerous infectious agents. So using the phage steering to sort of deal with them. Um, yes, ideally, I think we can. Um, there's a lab whose name is, is it du Duplo? Duplo? Um, He's working on uh, Ephicalis. Well, his lab's working on Ephicalis and phage interactions. They've shown, we had a chat a few months back now, they've shown that once you've treated the Ephicalis with the phage, once you've made, like, made them resistant, they're actually less infectious. So they can't transmit from, from mouse to mouse anymore. So you've, you've limited that sort of disease-causing state. Uh, I know the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation also had a, um, a large pool of a large pot of money to look at using phage to drive gut ecosystems basically so to say okay. can you can you make the gut less infectious i'm not sure who got that money <laughs> i think it, it might be in uh hook in um in warwick in the uk i think she got some of it she does excellent work as well so it's uh very i mean it's great it's a great use of that money yeah that's yeah it's really cool approach so what other kind of technologies are we talking about in terms of handling infectious agents because mm. the, the standard ones that we know of are antibiotics and you know mm -hmm. i guess phage therapy whether it's outdated or not um <laughs> but yes i mean what do we have in terms of the things that are novel that are coming out one of the things um my current pi's lab works on is sort of um adjuvant therapies so if you've taken any penicillin based antibiotic so amoxicillin or um, maybe you've been racing and taken piperacillin they typically are given with an adjuvant and this is a beta lactamase um, blocking uh, mimic i guess or what's an, it's a it's a it's a sort of beta lactam that sits inside the beta lactamase that makes it not be able to cut up the actual antibiotic so explain what so, beta lactamase is 
Sure. So beta-lactamase is the bacteria's way of dealing with antibiotic. It's always useful to think of antibiotics as natural products, and they really are. Um, we use them for very specific things, but all the antibiotic-resistant mechanisms, all the stuff we find, almost all of them, I don't want to write myself into a corner here, they all already have a natural analog. The bacteria and fungi have been using these things for millennia, billions of years, let's say. We think we're very smart picking this, like, oh, this thing works really well, we'll use it to, to, to treat, and 10 seconds later, the bacteria has an antibiotic resistance mechanism. That thing was already there, we've just selected for it. They have other functions. Um, so beta-lactamases are an enzyme that breaks down beta-lactam antibiotics, so anything based on penicillin. Mm -hmm. Um, so amoxicillin, if you have any sort of dental work done, is probably the most common antibiotic given. It comes as something called comoxicillin. And that co is because it has a, another drug, which is very similar, called calavacaic acid. So it looks very similar to, to amoxicillin, but it, the beta-lactam, beta-lactamase, sorry, thinks it is also an antibiotic, so it tries to break it down, but it can't. So it, okay. it stalls the, the beta-lactam, beta-lactamase from working. Yeah, I think I distracted you from talking about novel treatments. Uh, so, okay, so we, yeah, we, we've been thinking a lot about uh, colonization resistance, transmission resistance, and um, virulence reduction. So antibiotics are thin on the ground. Uh, they take time to prove they, you know, they are, again, they're natural products, so resistance will emerge very quickly. We spend a fair bit of time thinking, okay, well, how can we extend the life? How can we change the, uh, the change, change the dynamics? So how about scavenging iron? Uh, most bacteria need iron to survive in the infection. So your body already takes, does this, it already tries to keep all the iron in and bacteria release enzymes to try and get the iron out of the body. So what, what happens if we, if we also manipulate the iron levels and we try and reduce how much free iron there is, can we reduce uh, infection? Uh, can we find novel ways of doing this? Things like gallium, um, which is, <laughs> is an interesting problem. Again, uh, we've seen some work at the CFF conference where people are already spraying things like EDTA, this is another collator of, of, of chemicals, basically spraying them into people's noses and seeing does that stop them from getting infections. And we have a good colleague who's, a, who's an MD and he was like, what? Like, why would they, why would they just do that? Do they, like, well, they have, they have the, the, the approval to do it. So I guess, but yeah. Um, I'm just gonna turn this light on before it gets darker and darker. In there. <laughs> there we go. See me a little better. Um, and our, yeah, so our other, other thing is, is using these sort of these sort of novel therapeutics. Uh, we're not so much into designing new drugs because none of us are chemists, so we get the easy way of being like, oh, mm -hmm. let's just think about new ways. Um, my good collaborator and um, fellow in the group as well called Christopher Walder Waldertov. Uh, he and I published an MBio paper about ways to evolve novel antibiotics pretty recently. Um, again, it was mostly his, mostly his work, and we you know, we talked a bit. Some of it was actually based on some of the stuff I chatted with um, some of the cancer people. So David would would appreciate some of the stuff. But the idea of being well, if you have instead of trying to find new antibiotics out in the wild, why don't we just take things we know make antibiotics and sort of make them compete with antibiotic resistant bacteria and try and get them to jumpstart something novel? So we can instead of you know we're cranking on one side, we're we're just giving 
billions of tons of antibiotics each year to, to bacteria. Why don't we get the things that made them and try and like, you know, zap them into making some new interesting things. And obviously there's a whole bunch of very novel chemistry going on there, but the idea is can we select for novel antibiotic production using antibiotic resistance? So we've got a question from anonymous attendee who mm. I guess is going back to the, um, the human side of things and not being able to treat or rather um, the kind of infectious side of things. And it's, they ask, to what extent is our immune system able to evolve in response to the evolution of viruses and other infectious agents? Are we just slow to the race? So let me get this at a level, I think a nice simplistic level. When we talk about evolution, obviously that happens in the, the scale of generations. At the very least it happens, you know, you have to at least pass something on. But our immune system doesn't have to evolve. It has a, the, the adaptive part of it, which can actually learn new things. Um, so while the bacteria might be evolving and evolving and evolving, our immune system has the ability to change within, you know, within each of our lifetime dramatically and, and adapt to the situation it sees. That's not, it's not the same as evolution, um, but it, it, sort of, it sort of sidesteps the question of being like, okay, well, we, Trying to say something without getting, without getting in trouble with strict evolutionary people. Uh, <laughs> talk about speed evolution and all these other things. The, if, if evolve was in quotation marks, which I think it was in the question, yes, our immune system can evolve to become more adapted at seeing an infectious agent and dealing with that infectious agent by changing you know, how it responds to, to certain uh, pathogens. Um, in the strictest sense, that's not really evolution, though. And, if we if we were slow in the race, you know, there's Aesop's fables and stuff. You know, the antelope runs for his life and the lion runs for its dinner. Um, if we were slow in the race, we'd be dead. I think it's the way to think about it, right? If we were slow in the evolution yeah. race, we would we'd no longer be here. Yeah. Um, so I think we're we're starting to pivot in that direction anyway. Um, so we'll probably start shifting towards conversations about coronavirus and COVID nineteen. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but we'll, I wanted to begin with asking you about your involvement with mm. Kurzgesagt. So yeah. um, for anybody who doesn't know of them, which would be kind of surprising if, you do, if you're into any kind of science communication, mm -hmm. they make these very beautiful and informative videos. So tell us a bit about them and how they kind of started to come to you. Sure. So I guess it goes back to during my PhD, the UK had quite rightly decided that public engagement shouldn't be about, you know, shouldn't be a chore for academics. It shouldn't be a chore for people doing research. It should be ingrained into absolutely everything to do. This is public money. We need the public to understand why we have, take this money and what we're doing with it, how, how, how we improve life and how we improve, you know, all the things we do. It's a, it's a very high opinion of science, but there you go. And I, I had the idea that, you know, this, YouTube was sort of a new thing. I think it had existed for, I think it came out in 2005 and I started using it about 2007. So I was, I was pretty on it from early on. And I realized, you know, if I, can, if I can communicate effectively on YouTube, I could talk to thousands of people. You know, at that point, thousands of people on YouTube was a great, amazing <laughs> thing to have. And 
you know, there's, there's talking to a class full of people, which I've always loved doing. I was doing, I was doing this morning on, on, online. Um, I was chatting to a class full of children. And the first time I did this, um, the, the teachers had set up this sort of, you know, the scientists experiments, all these scientific experiments with plants. And I think they were giving some of them water, some of them sugar water, some of vinegar, some of them, you know, so they'd done like different treatments and they had replication and all these experiments with all these plants and they measured how well they're growing. And the, the day before they're gonna take their, like, their, their measurements, the cleaner knocked over the plants and destroyed the entire thing. So the oh. teachers were basically like, we've got these three scientists in the room, just ask them anything you want. So for an hour and a half, I fielded the, the most unique and diverse questions from a group of 12 year olds you can imagine from, why is Winston Churchill the dog in the, the, um, the Churchill adverts, you know, the Churchill insurance, UK thing here. In the UK, we have a Churchill insurance company. Their mascot's William Churchill as a dog, a bulldog. Why is he a bulldog? To how do volcanoes work? To what is gravity? And what's the big, like all these, like, and I absolutely love it. Like, I just so happy to tell kids cool stuff about science. So again, that, that has, a, has a place, talking to people face to face, talking to kids, mm -hmm. you know, small project, very much has a place because I can, you know, I, I know how I was influenced to go into science. It was through interactions like that, so reading books, you know. But at the same time, I can also reach thousands of people if I do it online. So I started making YouTube videos, and I was making a series of YouTube videos called The History of Infection during my PhD, which was reasonably well watched. A few thousand people watched them, and I was pretty happy with that. And I was talking about, uh, one of the last episodes I made was on the topic of death. Like I was talking about, in, you know, different infection stages, different ways people die. And the, so the, the, the connection between death and infection was, I was thinking about evolutionary forces of mitochondria. So two billion years ago, mitochondria were free living bacteria doing their own happy life. They got phagocytosed by another, maybe probably slightly bigger bacteria, I guess, and started the, you know, a lifelong, billion year collaboration <laughs> which is still a little shifty because they keep their own bits of dna and you know they have their own plasmids and stuff but through that time through those couple billion years mitochondria have evolved to be dead they've gone from being alive and evolution has selected for things that are now dead which i still to this day find just mind blowingly awesome like how can you know, we always think of evolution as survival of the fittest and when mm -hmm. we have survival means it's the life um so i've talked about this for 15 minutes on a youtube video and i got like a just got an email from this company like oh we really like this uh we make some youtube videos would you mind you know, we've got some biology in this would you mind just having a look over this video for us and just you know flag anything that's uh you think isn't quite right um and that was back when they had like let's say about ten thousand subscribers so to me, they were also, they were a huge channel. Like, oh, we <laughs> link out. I was like, oh, of course, yeah, of course, I'm happy to happy to have a read through. I just trying to work out which video it was. Um, it was one of the earlier ones, and it wasn't actually that all that biology related. It was sort of tangentially, <laughs> tangentially biology kind of. And they were like, oh, we should really have someone look over this because they were starting to get more and more sort of notice. And there's nothing worse than making a mistake on the internet if you're doing something like um, very well, like produced mm -hmm. i think it was i think it was are you alone in the universe was the first video i helped them with and so just you know they talk about life and other places and other parts of the universe i read through the script and it was like yeah this is fine um and then basically every time they had like a 
a biology video. So the immune system, what is life, measles, uh, Ebola video, um, antibiotics, uh, what are you, like what, what is life, uh, CRISPR-Cas, malaria. They would come to me and say, do you mind just reading through the script and mm -hmm. you know, tell us what you think? And we've developed a, like a, a reasonable close friendship over those years, but the main, the main guys, and you know, we chat quite a bit offline. And then it's like, oh, do you want to write a script for us back in you know, two, three years ago? So I was like, yeah, sure, well, I'll write something. So I wrote one of the videos, and it was the first one I'm actually credited as the writer. Um, but ever, yeah, ever since then, if they have, if they have something to do with infectional biology, they typically ask me to have a quick look over it. And you know, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I find this stuff so much fun. So I put, I'll put so much enthusiasm into the script and like try and make sure it's uh, as accurate as possible. Um, the, the last two or three videos I, I helped sort of fact check were the, um, the bacteriophage video. There's a Pito's paradox video, which I'm sure David may, <laughs> There's things he might have David's to take. nodding issue. vigorously in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> it may take issue because we, we talked about um, hypertumors, which I think is a cool idea and maybe not so, <laughs> maybe not so well received in, uh, in current cancer biology people. I still think it's a cool idea and I kind of, I kind of think it's the same idea as, um, so let me, let me, let me take a step back. Hypertumors, hyper the idea of hypertumors is the reason why large animals don't get a lot of tumors because they have hypertumor so the tumor itself gets a tumor and that reduces how well the the, the cancer Ooh, weird. um that that idea is kind of fallen out of favor quite rightly because not very much evidence for it <laughs> but <laughs> i'll it was usually also, do it <laughs> yeah um but there's also there's is ideas of social interactions between tumors which i think for is close enough to me in the same ideas what's happening in hypertumors that i was i was comfortable to put it in the video and say yeah that's okay because we're going to justify and say well we're using hypertumors as kind of like a um, a way to bridge people in and bring them and say this is a cool idea. Like, you know, if you say the word hypertumor, it's like, oh, that, what? <laughs> uh, so that gets people involved, and then you can sort of you've lied to them, so now you have to tell them the truth a little bit more. So. <laughs> um, there's there's the principle of a lot of these videos and a lot of the way the scripts work for me is that I think there's three levels. There's someone who has no idea what you're talking about, someone who has a little bit of idea, and someone who's an expert. So. Someone who has no idea, you can tell them anything. It's better to tell them the truth, but you can tell them anything. Someone who has some idea, like maybe a high school student or someone just starting university, they want to know ideas, they want to know things, they, you know, they're hungry for the information, maybe they're using this video to kind of get a, a broad understanding. And then the experts will watch it to try and find mistakes. <laughs> so you have to make sure you're, you're, what you've written works all those three levels. And there's a certainly a, an art to doing that, which the guys, at, uh, the guys and girls at Coastal Club have got to do fantastically um but at some point there's always gonna be an expert in the background like well yeah you could have said uh which is what my job for, well i don't say job but it's what i do for them quite often they'll send me a script and go so there's a script that they've got coming out sometime soon and basically they, i read it i was like well this is this is wrong this is not just not correct or not not quite right this there are parts of this that are now You've taken too much of a liberty that I would say this is now wrong, and then they've mm -hmm. gone back and rewritten, and they've you know they've gone back to the primary literature and they've read read the papers, and they now said this is this is this makes sense, um, and yeah. I've read it. Gone, yeah, that that's close enough to me. It's not, <laughs> you know, it's the how is it? C.P. Snow who said I'm going to get it wrong. No, it's not C.P. Snow. Some classic scientist said it's not even wrong, as like the worst thing a scientist can do, say something that's not even wrong. 
Um, so we're always trying to always trying to avoid that. Um, but yeah, so I've uh, I've been fact checking their videos on and off for the last five six years now, and it's it's so much fun, and it it's amazing to me how much of an audience we can reach with those videos. So the the coronavirus, I think, is about to hit eighteen million views. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is, I told my department, obviously people in my department, I was like, oh, would you mind proofreading this as well? Because this is, this is going to be seen by at least 10, it's going to be seen by at least 10 million people. And that's too much responsibility for me alone. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with the molecular biology, like how the virus actually makes us sick. I love that yep. stuff. That's my bread and butter. But the epidemiology stuff and sort of the public health stuff, would you mind just you know, double checking? I won't say the names, but one of the one of the people was like, yeah, yeah, sure, 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 that's fine. And I think they kind of brushed off, like, when I said 10 million people, they'd like, they had registered, but they're like, oh, no, he's just, you know, he's hyping it up a little bit too much. And then they sent me an email the other day being like, oh, so, oh, that, yeah, that video was... Uh, Taken off? <laughs> my, yeah, my, my inbox has kind of exploded. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll definitely put a link to it afterwards for anybody who hasn't seen it already. But, I mean, it's a beautiful piece of work, and... For me, as a biologist who knows nothing about infectious diseases or virology, mm -hmm. I mean, even for me, it was a really nice kind of um, primer yeah. to starting to understand all of this. Yeah. Um, and there definitely, sorry, go sorry, ahead. Okay. Well, I was I was just thinking that there are definitely definitely key things those videos that when I when I fact check, I really I really push them. So you have to get this concept across. I mean, obviously, with that video, there was quarantines and the reason we're doing this make there's a reason we're doing this all and you know hand washing what you can do there's also the idea of like why how does this virus actually make you sick which i think a lot of people don't don't really know like if you ask someone on the street like how does how does hiv actually kill people they go well it does something to the immune system like, yeah, well, what does it what does it do to the immune system like, well you know the same with, like measles and other other viruses when other you know any other sort of infectious agents so explaining just a little bit of how this virus actually makes people sick uh, i think is has has a place maybe not you know i don't know how much that helps the 80 million people watch this right now but in the future hopefully that breeds a little bit more interest about why we do the things we do in science why we care so much about these details because it's somewhere along that line understanding how the immune system dysregulation actually <laughs> occurs and what we can do to change it might help save lives of the next because there's going to be a next coronavirus outbreak there's going to be a next SARS and there's this, you know this isn't the last one unfortunately with any doubt yeah I mean this is obviously a really nice platform for doing science communication and as you say that their pieces are really well researched and mm -hmm. it's kind of depressing to see the overload particularly on this one particular subject the overload of bad information so David and I were talking about this kind of onslaught. So even for people who have a scientific background, to try and sift through all of that, most of it's garbage, you know? And for us, we're also relying on the experts to tell us what's going on, except you're getting conflicting information. Yeah. Um, I mean, how do we even begin to deal with that? It's, it's hard. And something, something I've noticed, especially with this outbreak, has been conflicting information from really reliable typically reliable sources for example the health the the, the mask situation for two three weeks people were told 
mask will do nothing for you. Do, do, not, do not wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. And I, so I told my family this virus was going to be an issue in the beginning of February. I said, stock up on food, water, make sure you know what, this is coming. It will, be, it will be a big problem. And they, luckily they listened to me. So they, they haven't had any of the issues with like panic buying and everything else. And they would say, well, now they're saying that face masks don't do anything on these. It's like, they, your personal, your personal risk and reward to wearing a face mask is quite limited. That's fine. You're, the biggest thing you'll do is you probably won't spread it to other people if you're wearing a face mask. That's based on like influenza stuff. But that doesn't mean it won't do anything. And the way the news and the way the sources are telling you this is kind of suggesting that it will do absolutely nothing. It's a waste of time. And what they should have been saying is like, it will help you, but if the doctors and nurses don't have these things, you will all suffer. So a little bit of compassion towards the medical staff who risk, who are quite literally risking their lives will go a long way. And instead now we have a, a doubt about the official narrative of these things. And it's the same thing that really <laughs> raised my hackles heckles was the UK referring to their strategies herd immunity. I've spent the last 10 years railing against anti-vaccination online. Mm -hmm. That's how one of the big things that drove me to sort of try and engage with the public was understanding why vaccination is so important, understanding how herd immunity works. And then using, using this to describe herd immunity, saying basically, oh, if we, if we let 60% people get infected, that will reduce its transmission. That's not herd immunity. That's letting the virus do what it wants, in, yeah. my, in my opinion. And now if I go and say to a population, oh, we, we rely on this because of herd immunity, they can always cast back into their mind that time the UK government said herd immunity, and now all they know is it was, it was a disastrous idea. We shouldn't be doing that. So by stealing these powerful words and using them for you know the trying to sell an idea is is so so irresponsible and so dangerous i it, i just i can't believe they had the the, the goal to do this and it, it, it's made me so angry about this information and the way the way this was described by the, the scientific authorities in the uk it's just i can't believe at no point someone in the room didn't say that's that's a terrible idea. Why are we doing this? Like I've been I've been in academic meetings. Those people are a dime a dozen. There's so many of us who are just you know contrarian for the for the fun of it. Um, why weren't they in those meetings? Yeah, I mean, I think part of the problem has been that it was just a perfect storm of things going wrong and being managed badly. And it feels mm -hmm. like a lot of countries similar. They've all been doing this badly. Yeah. And because it's a global problem, then how do you start to clamp down on this? I mean, it's not just yeah. the scientific information. It's, um, you know, the issues with the economy and the politics mm -hmm. and so on. I mean, you're in the home of the CDC. Yeah. Um, and they didn't start out so well for us in the US. Nope. And so you, you like, I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but you speak, you speak to people who work on the CDC and they are as annoyed as we are. They, they know because they are the experts and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a permanent resident in this country. So maybe I shouldn't say this much, <laughs> but I, I don't want to, you know, cast aspersions of my, 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 my grateful host, the country, but maybe listen to the people you pay regional salaries to, to actually think of these ideas and like, have, uh, you have, have an authority in this topic, actually maybe listen to them. Um, yep. Because I would say that this is one of those cases where, you know, it's 
there are certain things that maybe money, having money and having power will get you out of, but this is one of those things that is not going to discriminate. I think we've had a very, a very long, you know, in living memory, no one's actually ever had to think about it. There hasn't been anything like this before in living memory. I was telling this to the children I was doing this morning because they, you know, they were quite, quite obviously worried about some of the things I was saying. <laughs> talking about this deadly disease. Hey, kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Enjoy your breakfast. And, <laughs> and I, I sort of finished by saying, you know, I, you know, this is, this is something none of us have ever had to do. And the scientists behind the scenes were doing everything we can to make sure this, this is as controlled as possible. But that doesn't mean we'll get listened to. And you know, there's, there, are, there are problems, but this is, this is nothing we've ever done before. We are, we are living through a historical event, you know, as we are living history as it happens. So you know, trust in people who you should trust them, trust in the scientists, trust that we're doing the right thing, we're doing everything we can do, but we don't have any better answers than we currently have. So, you know, yeah. try to relax, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah, so one of the things I've been talking about with my boss uh, is, um, so originally when this outbreak um, kind of reared its head, people were saying, well, we shouldn't worry about it because the regular flu, the seasonal flu has killed more people this time around. And now people are saying, well, this is a problem. So what are those discrepancies and why are we more worried about this than something that actually does kill tens of thousands of people a year or can do? So the, the flu does absolutely horrible work every year, but that's just because we got used to it. Again, if you, if you released a flu, like another flu-like disease like we currently have, which is even worse, people would be terrified. There's a vaccine for flu, so you can. So I think there's some, you know, multiple things happening. Some psychology of people thinking they'll be okay, they can vaccinate themselves, they can protect themselves. But in terms of scale, I think the flu. Last time I looked at the flu numbers in mid-flu season, the amount of people who died of like flu and not just pneumonia was about 500 a week in the U.S. Mid-flu season last year, which is a bad flu season, if I recall. In Italy today, we've had 900, maybe 1,000 people die of uh, COVID mortality. At the population, you know, there's 60 million people in Italy, 300 million here. So we're talking, you know, five times smaller population in Italy. And they've had, in a single day, more deaths than we have the worst week, worst week of flu season. So th these things are not comparable, aside from the fact they are taking human lives. That's the only comparison we should be thinking about. And the flu's still here. It hasn't gone away. We still have all these people who are still getting the flu. So I don't know if anyone has <laughs> worked in a medical setting, but medical settings are not like, oh, everyone's fine. Everything's, you know, this is a very laid back job where everything kind of just happens. Medical professionals are working tooth and nail to stop people at the best of time from succumbing to infectious disease. You throw another thousand people in that, in that ward who need ventilation and serious support you're very quickly overwhelmed the system isn't built for to have slack isn't built to have spare capacity because that doesn't make sense in in those times it's very mm -hmm. the systems and the training all those doctors are very expensive resources to have so it we you know we in the uk last flu season basically wiped out the uk 
um, response. It was it was at breaking point. <laughs> we as the UK, we always we always say the NHS is at breaking point because it always is at breaking mm-hmm. point. It's held together by, I think, a mixture of love for it and duct tape. And, um, <laughs> there's so adding any extra burden to that very quickly pushes over the edge. And as we've seen in case in Italy and Spain now, there are choices, very difficult choices being made about. Okay, well, we have someone who's in their thirties and we have someone in their sixties. This person has the 60 year old doesn't really have a great odd. Whereas the 30 year old, if we treat them, they have a pretty decent odd. So we'll, we only have resources to treat the 30 year old. That is to think we're, <laughs> to think we are at that position already. Um, and we have no idea where we're on, along, uh, where we are along the exponential mm-hmm. curve. It should terrify people. Yeah. And uh, I think. And I, I hope, I hope in two months' time this is done and everyone can then say, oh, you all overreacted, we shut down the economy, we did all this stuff for nothing. It's like, oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> no, there's no correlation between those two things. We didn't, we didn't all spend two weeks at home and that had no effect. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think part of the problem is, like you said, that um, you, know, you, you care about your research and you care about the fact that this could be helping people, but until you yeah. met a patient, it didn't kind of solidify that for you. And I have a horrible feeling this is true for a lot of the people we're talking about here. Anybody who doesn't know somebody who's been affected, for them it's just this, you know, it's just a pain in the ass, frankly. It's a nebulous thing that's somewhere, it's happening. Um, and yeah, until you know, until a celebrity dies of it undoubtedly, or someone in your family does it, no, one, no one's gonna pay enough attention to it. Um, yeah. So, and as we saw in, other countries or a lot of the sort of government officials say i've had it i've recovered everything will be fine and it's sort of like well you wouldn't be able to say that if you hadn't yeah quite uh, i also wonder if this was if this hadn't been you know covid19 if this had been ebola for example which has pretty gruesome effects whether people would have clamped down on it a lot sooner yeah so I, i hope so yeah that's true. I mean, the stage, who knows? Um, but we have anonymous attendee asking uh, about the use of chloroquine. There are conflicting mm. reports on the use of chloroquine to treat COVID-19. Can you provide your opinion on this? Yes, my opinion is there's contradictory reports. <laughs> <laughs> That's about the best I can, I can give. Um, I think there was some evidence that uh, I'm, I'm talking half of memory here. Um, that the paper wasn't particularly well done. That showed that showed the effect. Um, I would love, I'd love nothing more than it to be clear evidence that actually this has an effect and we can treat it. That would be great. But I, I haven't seen that evidence. And there, there's a scale of risk, right? So if I had the disease, what, what would I, what would I personally do to to, to help myself? That's always a, a way I think of these things. Like if I had a horrible bacterial infection, would I try phase therapy? A hundred percent. If I had some form of aggressive cancer would i approach uh, experimental researchers who in the field 100 percent. if i had covid would i take this no that's that's the level of evidence i have for this yet as yet um that i think there were some questions about some of the other work done by some of the scientists involved with those studies as well so um yeah i, I don't i don't i don't know enough about that to say oh these people have done unusual stuff in the past so i don't want to throw any dispersions again but 
I, I'm not at the stage yet where if I had it, I'd take it. Yeah. So it's and a, I think, a good barometer, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very tedious thing that scientists have to say all the time. You know, it's a slow process. We want uh, to have as many good studies as possible so that we yes. can come to some kind of um, consensus. That's the word I'm looking yeah. for. Um, and the, the problem is that things are changing so quickly and people are trying to publish and they're trying to test as quickly yeah. as possible, which is necessary. But at the same time, it's, it's not giving us that consensus that I think we need. Yeah. So on that topic, I mean, we had a, we had a lab meeting today where we, we were talking about modeling some infectious stuff. And we kind of come away from that meeting and be like, if we, if we talk about this now, that's just more noise in the system, which people do not need. They don't need us with our airy-fairy modeling system, like, oh, look at this idea here. We can, that's another paper that can be published in five years' time. We can, you know, if we have to change to talk about flu, we can talk about flu. The ideas are the same. Um, so lim limiting our own sort of, you know, electronic noise at this point is, I think, is quite useful. Um, mm -hmm. And I've, I've tried to be careful about what I do and say on Twitter online, so I don't start going down rabbit holes of trying to defend all uh, uh, critiques and things, but it's. Um, there are there are a lot of armchair experts, and I'm I'm myself. I'm not an expert on co on coronavirus. I just happened to read a lot of papers for this video where I wanted to fact check everything. So I read almost everything published in 2020 on, on the virus. Um, I didn't read all the preprints because there's just a billion of them. <laughs> like if it was a published journal, there's a good yeah. chance I read it, and I, I find the the sort of pathophysiology very interesting. So that's again that's that's where I would say I am close enough to an expert on the pathophysiology of viruses to make an informed decision but on the treatment on epidemiology on the evolution on the genetics on the thing you know no not not my field mm -hmm. um, speaking so, of that I did there's a question I see another question about treatment yeah <laughs> which I I can answer if you'd like yes so are people currently on antivirals like HIV meds less susceptible for infection that's interesting because possibly um depends on the anti-hiv medication uh it could happen there are a lot of there are a lot of hiv medications where it just will not work because they're based on things like receptors um so one of my favorite ones i always always wax lyrical about is i forget its name now but it's based on i first read about it when it was called t20 when it was in preclinical trials so that's the only name i still remember but it's a uh, uh an amino acid analog. So when, when HIV attaches to the host cell, when it finds its co-receptor, CRC5, it effectively harpoons the membrane. And this harpoon then retracts itself, it sort of winds itself back up into the virus. And that, that winding back up brings the viral envelope and the host cell into close enough proximity that they can merge and the, the, the genetic material goes into the cell. We, we being the wider scientific community, of course, developed uh, this analog to these amino acids and it just sits in that little hinge part so the, the the harpoon can't retract so the viral particle just sits on the outside of the cell obviously those two drugs will have no effect on uh things like covid but the reverse transcriptase inhibitors the you know the things that maybe reduce viral transcription they might help um it's it it's hard to say. I think I think we should investigate them. I think we should look into it. Um, 
people with HIV are probably going to have quite a high comorbidity with this because one of the ways that the virus is cleared is by CD4 and CD8 plus T cells. So if you have active HIV, there's a very good chance that you will have a very bad time with the virus because your you immune system that would fight it is not non-existent at that time. Yeah, I think one of the big problems with, for example, the chloroquine is that now people who have lupus and rely on the drug to stay well are suddenly being told, no, we can't fill your prescription because it might be necessary for something else, which is... It might be necessary, yeah. Which is... Outlandish. Yeah, it's an odd place to find yourself where it's like, well, no, they still need the medication. Um, yeah. I... I I don't envy anyone having to make those decisions. No, no, indeed. Um, so there have been groups studying the, starting to study the use of approved drugs for the treatment of COVID symptoms. What's your opinion of those? Is it, is it possible to control the symptoms of COVID? So the symptoms are all based on, you know, things happening inside the body. So there are, and this is based on SARS, and they're so, so close genetically, they're basically the same virus. There are some differences, and we, you know, I could go into those, but they become so minutia-driven differences. I, you need a PhD in immunology just to sort of follow along, I think. Um, the, there are structural proteins of virus, and there are non-structural proteins. So the non-structural proteins in SARS and coronavirus have a, a role in modulating the immune system. Um, so interferon gamma, uh, TNF-alpha, IL-8, IL-6, all these sort of immune system modulators, the cytokines and chemokines, they are influenced by the virus. It has proteins that change the expression of these uh, immune system controllers, let's call them. So if we can change how that system is then working, we could effectively treat the symptoms. And those symptoms, you know, inflammation and things like that, we could, we could reduce the, the virulence of the disease. Um, a lot of the treatment seems to be just give them uh, ibuprofen and paracetamol. That mm -hmm. seems to be a very common treatment, which is, yeah, it will help with inflammation, it'll help with a headache, and it might, it might, it probably does help. Um, there's, you know, uh, I did see people talk about ibuprofen might be dangerous as well. Again, I haven't seen any good evidence that that's true. Uh, that seems to be started by people, uh, some rumor mill starting that. I don't, th I don't believe that's true. From what I recall. Yeah, that was that was a very strange thing as well. Like yeah. I think it was the French government absolutely insisting this was true, and then it just went mm. absolutely bananas on all of my social media. Everybody said, Don't take ibuprofen. Yeah. This is exactly the kind of thing we want to not do. Yes. Yes. Um <laughs> it's 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 so hard to, to kind of control this information at at this time. And it's again, there's so many armchair experts who are saying these things and oh i have an aunt who who had the disease and she took you know fish oil liver to and she now she's fine so well okay that's not a scientific experiment and that doesn't help us we don't know if she actually had it and you know all these things and but people people definitely again i may be talking out my term of psychology here but people definitely become more risk adverse they go back to sources they think are trustworthy so they they start relying on pre-existing information networks to, to get their, their, their data. Um, and if those networks are terrible, 
because yeah, they might be. They might be you know, founding members and all this other stuff. Then you, you're going to get you're going to have issues. Yeah, I mean, I love my family, but like a lot of people, <laughs> I'm finding that they are sharing things from rumor mills, and I just there's only so much time in the day. Yeah. Um. So we had oh, I... you as well. Oh, I've, I've actually reactivated Facebook just to go on to, to, to temper <laughs> some of those discussions. Because I know they were having these discussions. I know they were saying mm. this stuff. So I went back on and said, no, no, I've, your, your friendly PhD nephew or cousin or whatever, I'm here to tell you that's not correct. Because um, that's where they were getting, getting the information. And like, I, took, I took the hit of reactivating Facebook to, to go and you know, write a message and say, this is not correct this is not what you should be thinking about. people are saying things like oh i see china's reopened now they didn't lose 10 percent of the population it's like yes but they also quarantined um everybody people yeah. a billion people oh no sorry seven seven hundred million people so 10 percent of the world population was under quarantine at one point in china and they did that they their first quarantine of 45 million people they did that when they had 500 confirmed cases Regardless of whether or not you believe the Chinese government and the numbers they're reporting, it does not matter. They had 500 confirmed cases and they quarantined 45 million people. And then two weeks later, they quarantined 700 million people. That is why they are now on the downward spiral. Not, that, that was a huge endeavor. And it was a month-long endeavor, at least a month. So don't tell me, oh, they didn't. Yes, because they took drastic action mm -hmm. at an early stage, which watching the oncoming train wreck of other governments being like, well, this is okay. We'll do this when we get to, the, there's a right time for these right measurements. There is a right time for these measurements. It was two months ago or two weeks ago. Yeah. I, I should get off my soapbox. <laughs> no, I mean, it's this, I think this is where uh, a lot of people feel they're at right now. Yeah. Um, but going back to the biology, this is a curious question. Uh, HIV tends to hide in microglia. So this is a type of kind of um, mm. protective cell within the brain. Um, do you know if the coronaviruses do the same or are there other kind of repositories in the brain? In the brain? I don't know about the brain. Oh, in the body, sorry. I was going to say, it doesn't matter. Um, so going back to SARS viruses, we, they, uh, they typically infect any... You think of infecting any sort of ciliated cell, so any cell that has like a, a beating hair on it. So your, your lungs or your, your intestines. They've also found quite good evidence, and they're not sure how it gets in, of the virus being in dendritic cells, so part of the immune system cells. Um, this is quite common of a lot of viruses. They typically hijack immune cells, but we're not too sure how they've actually got in there. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it hiding, though. Uh, so, so to my knowledge, no. Um, that's again sort of the scientist way of <laughs> sidestepping the question. Maybe, but to my to my personal knowledge, no. That doesn't mean it's not true. But I I can't tell you the case where they the virus is hiding inside a, uh, a cell. I know I know they get into cells that we're not too sure how, um, but I don't think they're like laying dormant there or anything. Hmm. So if, if there was something that you could do now, mm. and I mean, if someone gave you a magic wand, like you can't get rid of the virus necessarily, yeah. but you could do something to make everything better. What do you think you would opt for? <laughs> uh, assuming I can't time travel either. Um, 
I would I would increase testing, um, both both the 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 test of who's had it and who has it, who's had it, uh, because those people can then be basically released back into the wild and uh, act as you know the crutch that we that we also very very much need right now, um, and who has it, which is you know the, there's a mixture between maybe we could do more for the testing like like request wise and there's more we could probably do but it's also again there's a worldwide shortage of the the reagent to extract the rna so you know we we had a call two weeks ago from the state basically asking us for a list of everything we had in our lab that mm. might might work we gave that list and we've heard nothing back yet and my assumption is bigger forces are afoot i hope bigger bigger things are happening that you know this is that's a small scale you know this isn't D-Day. We don't need every fishing man to to go across to Dunkirk and pick up our sailors. We're hope, I'm hoping that there are wide-scale plans afoot. Um, but those, those that's what I would do. I would I would increase testing because we um, we need to know who hasn't, who's had it, and then we can you know there are there are some really cool things we could do. If we just knew, and I don't I don't understand why why this hasn't been addressed. Maybe maybe we should put this in the video, but. If you know who's had it, you can do what we did, like join smallpox. Um, you can build like a firewall around those people and understand. Okay, this person's had it; they're a frontline responder. That means we have to take this person out of the system. We have to replace them this way. We have to focus on this this group here. They, there's a large outbreak here. We can we can you know do sort of dynamic quarantining of people. We could have been doing that from the start. Maybe it's too late now. Um, you know, the cat's out of the bag. I think one of the the best. Um, the best sort of most reliable information sources I found is people like Mark, Mark Lipsitch. Um, he said, I want to say it was the 14th or 15th of February, he basically said, containment's failed. The cat is out of the bag. This is coming. And when he said that, that's the day I, I emailed my parents and said, or sent them a message saying, the cat, you know, containment's failed, get prepared. Uh, if we had started doing these tests then at that point, um, we could be in a very different situation. And I, I, guess, I guess I don't understand some of the politics, maybe. Maybe I'm too naive <laughs> to understand why we, you know, why the US didn't, why we had to redesign our own primers for some, for some reason. I don't understand why. Yes, so this, this is another uh, subject of contention, right? So um, obviously you, you know what PCR is, I know what PCR is. Mm -hmm. And can you explain exactly what it is that the test does? How yeah. testing for the virus? So they're, they're, doing, they're doing quantitative reverse transcriptase PCR or RT-qPCR, I think some people call it. So the, the virus has RNA as its genetic material. So first you have to change that into DNA. Um, you also want to know how much is there. There, there are... There are good reasons for doing qPCR, so quantitative PCR as opposed to just doing a PCR reaction. Um, people have shown fewer steps, it's more accurate determining certain things, kind of minutia stuff, but yeah. So we, we, we use a uh, fluorescent marker and we, we count how many, how many copies of the RNA we have in the sample. And that test requires a, a primer, which is a very short stretch of DNA maybe 20 base pairs long and we use that and it matches the genetic code of the virus so first we have to extract the rna 
that's one of the chemicals that's running out. We have to, we have to change its DNA and then we run this PCR step. Um, and that allows us to tell how many copies of the RNA virus was there or were there, sorry. Um, that, that QPCR was sort of, I was explaining this to, again, to the kids earlier today because they had a very similar question. I was like, I can build a PCR machine. If you give me enough wire and you know, some, maybe a YouTube tutorial to, I could probably solder together a PCR machine. It's just a heated plate on a timer. A QPCR machine, you could give me all the parts with like detailed instructions and I could not put it together. It's the difference between a kite and an F-15 in complex, <laughs> how complex these things are. It, it uses fluorescent markers and fluorescent cameras and all sorts of very cool things. It has dedicated software. They are complex machines. So there's not so much a shortage of them again, like our lab has one and you could run enough, you could test, you know, 100 people every three hours in that machine if you run it full time. Um, but the, the overall test is basically asking how many copies of the viral RNA do we find in the sample? And you have, I assume there's a cutoff that says, yes, this is a positive and this is a negative test. I think that answers the question. Yes. <laughs> <Do> yes. <we? laughs> and I think my follow-up was going to be, what was it that went wrong with the kits? I really don't know. There were lots of jokes that they let a, a PhD student design the primers, which I find mean at the same time as it's probably accurate. Um, and so it tends to be the PhD student knows the most on the lab or knows the least. Um, I think it's a good way to summarize it. But there's, there's programs online and it's not it's not a difficult thing to do so and we were I also saying that for this you would think there might be some checks and balances that maybe whoever designed them was checked downstream by someone who said yeah this these are not going yeah. to work for x y and z reasons you would you would hope so but I, I can see how these things fall through cracks because everyone just assumes someone else has done it mm -hmm. everyone else assumes it's been checked but um, yeah. Yeah, I, so, again, I wish I knew, but it's it, it's escaped. I'll have to I'll have to get some of the CDC people drunk at one point and probe <laughs> for more information. Like that, it might be restricted like knowledge by that time under some sort of secrets act. But yes, quite. Um, somebody's asking about uh, containment and what steps you are taking in terms of going into the lab, being in the lab, getting home, yeah. reducing exposure. Yeah. So I haven't been to the lab in two weeks. I've, I've, I've left my house to go for a walk around the block um, a couple of times this last week. We've been out three times to go walk, keep physical distance away from people, uh, wash my hands every chance I get when I leave the house. And obviously once I'm in the house and things are clean, not, not constantly washing my hands. Um, our research lab has basically shut down. Uh, we have closed the door when we are not doing essential work. Uh, there are three people allowed in. One is, one is doing essential lab, lab maintenance. So we have some some stuff that has to be kept alive. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, we, the stuff that, that is a living organisms in the lab that can't die. So yeah. the, that's been, that's carrying on. Um, but I, I've reduced my social contacts from probably, you know, on a good day, I'd probably speak to maybe 10 to 20 people and you know, go to the lab, walk around corridors, come to six feet of you know maybe 70 people a day that's now gone down to myself and my wife and mm -hmm. our cat so you know it's uh 
we Pets are people too. <laughs> yes, I don't think they can transmit the disease as much as I'm sure no. this one would love to. He's uh, <laughs> it's a typical horrible cat. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the main yeah the main thing we do is just reduce our transmission and uh, the the there are not how the re the reproductive uh, number of this virus is about two to three. So if if enough people take the same sort of steps, we can reduce the the transmission of this virus dramatically. Like if I get sick now, uh, assuming I don't have to go to the hospital, I will not pass it to anyone else. I or maybe, maybe perhaps my wife if she didn't give it to me in the first place. <laughs> but it's, the, the the transmission will be a dead end. That's the goal. That's the hope, um, and we can limit that by hand hygiene. Don't cough into people. Um, if you feel sick, stay at home. Even if you're not sure, like again, if you have a slight headache, stay at home. Um, there are some things that are not linked to the disease, like runny noses and stuff like that. Probably, probably don't have coronavirus. But at this point in time, I would still say stay at home if you can. Mm -hmm. um, I I realize obviously I'm privileged in the fact that I can do my job on my computer. Um, a lot of my lab work is is secondary to some of the theory stuff. Some of the, I've got, you know, like, like every academic, I've got five papers I'm meant to be writing this time. I've got grants I have to review. I've got papers I, I just accepted to do a plus one paper on Tuesday and they, wanted, they wanted to say. So I've got stuff I can do as a job and still feel productive. Mm -hmm. and there are lots of people who are not in that same situation. And I don't, I don't want to impose them and say, no, you must stay at home. What are you doing? That's a, it's very ivory tower of me to be like, oh well, I can't, I can't, can't everyone just stay at home and drink their latte from, the, yeah. So, I understand there's a, obviously a there's a there's a there's a certain burden that can't be mitigated. There are certain mm -hmm. people who have to go to work, like construction workers. If you don't go and do your job, you don't get paid. And if it was my, if it was me, I'd be doing my job because mm -hmm. I money to survive. So, um, yeah. but if you if you can, I think a lot of people are also going to find out that most of their jobs can probably be done from home. <laughs> Lots of office workers who find out what the hell was I doing all this time in an office? I could be at home. And... Quite, yeah. yeah. I mean, there there are people who are naturally very gregarious, and for them, you know, it's it's kind of their lifeline. But um, yeah, it's true. It's not just you know, not just uh, the work itself, but meetings and things. I think there's going to be a huge overhaul in these things. Yes, I. That's one of the things I'm really looking forward to is that we can just hit a hard reset on any meeting like i want us to do a in, in my group i want us to not have any meeting unless we absolutely have to so we just you know we don't fall back into that pattern of having a monday afternoon meeting or a thursday morning if, if we have to have a meeting then we schedule one we don't just yeah adopt back into our <laughs> terrible terrible way of doing meetings oh, um, quite so, i hope yes so i'm gonna uh, use this last question which seems like a very uh, good one as a, uh, a larger overview type question um, and it says do you think the response in the US right now is going to be enough to control this mm. so there's a couple of things there to control it eventually yes what, what we are doing now will lead us to a point where the virus is no longer spreading through the population at large uh, the question, the, the follow-on question is, and well, how bad will it be? I think 
our current strategy and our current plan and how we're doing things. If people were following all the advice, we would we'd probably be in for another month or so of strict quarantine uh, and you know, quite quite a fair bit of uh, mortality. The next two weeks are going to be very challenging on the healthcare system, I assume, because again, looking at where Italy is and how, how things develop there, or how New York is, for example, where they're beginning to realize, it's not fair, I shouldn't say they're beginning to realize, they've realized for a while, mm-hmm. like Kobe and other people have, have been asking for help for quite a while. We could be doing more, that's for certain, again, testing, and some of that is, you, could, you can't test if you don't have a kit. Um, I'm not sure how well more draconian methods would work of saying you cannot leave your house. Mm-hmm. Knowing, knowing some, some of the American psyche and how people would respond to such behavior, they might, they might take it as a challenge. Um, or they would quite rightly say, I'm fine. I don't feel sick. Why should I, why should I just listen to you? When, when, you not, when so far you haven't told me anything honestly for the last two months you've, mm-hmm. you've said this 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 and this and this is where trust in institutions becomes a real big issue and mm-hmm. we've been doing nothing but erode that trust for the last few years now so we you know we, we're we're entering into very interesting times um to do more aside from more testing uh, we we should be producing more ventilators. Again, that's a naive academic saying, why don't we just make more of the things? I, I know there is a supply chain or sort of stuff that has to come into it. Um, I think the Army Corps setting up um, setting up temporary hospitals is a great idea. And that, that uh, there's a three-star general talking about, or four-star general talking about what they do and how they're going to do that. That was very reassuring to see. Basically, they will take over a hotel. They will take over a stadium and say, this is now the, this is now the armies. Go away. We're going to make... Mm-hmm. Hostile beds are going to make negative pressure areas, um, because the aside from like I, again, I'm talking a little bit about of out of my depth here, but as, my understanding aside from necessarily the actual physical process of intubation, a lot of the care is very much monitor, monitoring, making sure they're getting oxygen. It's not you're not performing surgery on all these people for 24 hours a day. It, it requires someone to, to make sure they're they're getting fluids. The drugs at time they're not they're not experiencing a problem so a lot of this could be done by people who are not so fully trained as as medics so the army corps could do a lot of work there um yeah i guess it's a it come it to finish it basically says yes this will what we what we're doing will work we could do more and um i i can't see a a strategy which is not worth the economic cost let's put it that way anything i think we could do if we're going to save a few thousand people a few hundred people to me the economic cost is what we <laughs> the money will come back you know your your friends and your cousins and your grandparents they won't yeah quite well we we don't like this to be all doom and gloom and mm. we are all humans who like to um revel in someone else's misery. So we usually ask our scientists to tell us a story about them doing either something embarrassing or um, a segment we like to call the dirt. So yes. what was your dirt story, James? <laughs> so, so, so to you, David, I had to think quite hard about this one. 
Um, not because there isn't any dirt, just because I have to find something that won't get me in actual trouble. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> the I, I suppose my, my yeah my biggest my biggest science mistake, or one of them. Um, I was supervising a student in Montpellier in France, and uh, we were doing uh, bacterial infection assays of, on wax moths and trying to cheat. So it's a, it's a little moth larvae. So it's a galeria something other other. So it makes a, a horrible gray moth. Uh, so we take the larvae of those and we inject them with bacteria. It's a good infection model because they, they die super easily. So if you do anything good, it's very easy to see, oh, six wax moths survive. That's a huge effect because they normally, they will die just like stabbing with some saline water normally. Mm. Um, so I was working with a student and the student also happened to be the uh, son of my boss. So he, you know, obviously was working in the lab because his, his dad had sort of just come, come work in the summer in our lab and it'll be fine and get some experience working in the lab. And we had this archaic contraption machine to do the actual injection. So you had to hold the wax moth and they're about maybe half an inch in, in length and you know, an eighth of an inch in diameter. So you have to hold them with gloves on and you have this, this needle injection machine where it has a big handle that you slowly rotate and it slowly pushes the liquid forward and injects a tiny amount. But you have to thread the wax moth onto the needle. So it's, there's a sharp needle with bacteria like that will kill you if it gets in your bloodstream and you have to physically pick up the wax moth and insert it onto the uh onto the deadly deadly needle um so i was explaining to the student who again for context was my my boss's son whatever you do don't stab yourself maybe a minute later ow <laughs> Like, oh God, <laughs> Thank, thankfully it was the control injection. So it was just the phage. Mm -hmm. And I was like, if, if you see anything, anything out of the odd with your finger, immediately go to the hospital, tell them you were in a lab pseudomonas, but you should be okay. <laughs> like, um, he, uh, he's no longer with us, so uh, no, he's... Uh, <laughs> He's fine. He, he's, he's absolutely fine. We, and I, I used that as a, an excuse to buy a far safer machine that we didn't have to like thread, thread microscopic worms onto the front of a needle with. Um, yeah, so that was, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if Mike knows that. <laughs> if, he's, if he's listening, I didn't kill Julian. But maybe half an hour later, he would, I also took over doing the injections at that point and we we awkwardly had to start using like some tweezers, which were made the whole process much slower, but much, much safer. Very good. And you all live to tell the tale. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, this has actually been going on a lot longer than we expected, a lot longer than our usual episodes. But um, I wanted to say thank you so much uh, yeah. for your time and your, uh, your patience. <laughs> uh, and, um, we hope to do this again with more people. And in the meanwhile, cheers, clink. Cheers. <laughs> I've, got, I've got through my margarita, so. Lovely. All right, and thank you very much uh, to everybody for listening and for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, Bye for now.